Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 43 here in just a moment if you want to keep those open and available uh, during our teaching. If, if you're visiting Christ Church today, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're, you joined us. My name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. Uh, and uh, we're glad you joined us on this journey. I'm going to try to catch everybody up to speed. We have people popping in and out uh, based on their schedules on the weekends. And so I want to tell you where we're going so you can kind of see the big picture of this uh, gospel series. The first nine sermons in this series were what we call the arrival. And what it focuses on is a passage of the scriptures where it's telling us about the prophecies of Jesus, the message to Mary and Joseph, John the Baptist's birth, and all that took place in that. Because what we've done is we've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're folding them together to, to come up with the best chronological order we can imagine, to tell the story as maybe the way it played out. And in doing so, those first nine weeks, we focused on a, a movement, like an orchestral piece, a movement in Jesus' life called The Arrival. And then we moved to a 10-week section, which we're ending today, called The Obscurity. And in this part of Jesus' story, he's not well-known. It's beginning to break into the public uh, arena, but it's more of a locale-based thing, where he's not become popular. Next week, we'll launch into a longer section in Jesus' life called The Recognition, and obviously that's self-explanatory. The world starts to pick up who he is and what he's here to do. And so we've been three weeks in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. In week one, we looked at this woman Jesus met who didn't want to be disturbed. She'd been taken advantage of. She'd had a rough life, and she just wanted to be left alone. And Jesus meets her and offers her something that doesn't identify her by her sin. It identifies her by her hope. And it changes the trajectory of her life, and she does an amazing thing. Then in week two, we saw that this woman went back into the community that rejected her, And she offered them the same hope that she had. And the Bible says that her community came back and after spending two days with Jesus, began to believe in him because of what he taught and who he was. And so today we're going to go into the final part of John chapter 4 and notice something significant that John's going to point out to us about a man who comes to Jesus with expectation and need. Let's begin in verse 43. After the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. What I want to do this morning from this particular text is show you uh, the man's response to Jesus' words and then show you Jesus' response to his faith. It's a very simple uh, approach to the text, but it's, I think it's powerful and meaningful as we continue. John points out to us in the very beginning, as we look at this man's response to Jesus' words, John points out that Jesus had told them that someone in their own hometown is hardly ever accepted as a prophet because they're well-known. 
people would say, well, isn't this Joseph's son and isn't he the carpenter? Isn't, isn't Jesus the carpenter that's worked in our town? We've known him for his entire lifetime and, and now he's the Messiah and where did this come from? For 30 years there's nothing and now all of a sudden there's this or they could have said, well, he's Mary's son and you know the weight of that, what that means, right? Mary's son, illegitimate, born out of wedlock, all of that comes with that. And one of the things we need to notice that Jesus pointed out to his disciples, and John parenthetically tells us that Jesus said this would happen, is there's an issue when we think we know Jesus so well. And it can even happen in the church, let's be honest. When, when Jesus' story becomes, I know that story, it can lose its power for us. When we become so familiar with what we know about Jesus that we can't learn anything else, we've lost the power of the gospel. And it's very easy for us to do what Fred Craddock, a preacher's preacher, calls a knot of recognition. Oh, I know that story. And not be able to delve deeper into what's being shown. And so Jesus said that they don't accept what I do here because I'm just Joseph and Mary's boy. But then something happens. A man comes to Jesus and it says he's an official of Herod's court. And he begs Jesus. This is a man with great power. People move when he says move and they jump when he says jump and all that comes with that. He has Herod's authority. Herod has Rome authority. So Roman authority in Herod's life is passed on to this man. He's an official. He carries power, prestige. He's got presence in the community. But I want to say all of that set it aside. What you really have is a dad, a parent. He comes to Jesus because his son is dying. And it doesn't matter how much prominence he has in the eyes of Rome, he can't fix his kid. So when he hears that Jesus is coming back to Galilee, he goes to Galilee to meet him. And he goes to Capernaum and he comes and he, and he travels 20 miles to be in the presence of Jesus because he needs Jesus. And he knows that his, his authority is worthless if his son is dying. His, his power is meaningless. There's no army or government. There's nothing Rome can do to fix his kid. So he comes to Jesus. And when we see him as a parent, we'll understand what takes place in this story. All of his authority and power means something on this earth. It doesn't mean anything when it comes to life and death. And he comes in desperation, begging Jesus to heal his son. When you read John's gospel, you notice a couple of things. John does something unique that not, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do it as pronounced, I think, as John does. John will show you there are times that people come to be healed by Jesus and Jesus does nothing. And then there are other times Jesus does something. So I guess I want to ask you, I I kind of wonder if I'm in a like-minded group. Am I the only person in the room who's ever struggled with Jesus because he doesn't seem to be in near the hurry I am? Am I the only person who sometimes wonders that if Jesus just listened to what I told him to do, he could get more popular? (laughs) Right? So a guy's dying. And I say to God, if you healed him, the testimony of your power and his life would be so amazing, he'd spend the rest of his life talking about it. And I present that, and it's interesting that God does nothing. And then there are other times where it's like, God, if you just fix this marriage or you healed this heart or this person who's, you know, I've even got friends who say there is no God and they'll never believe there's a God. And I beg God, just show up one time and blow his mind. If you did that, that would work. And God in all of his wisdom, and Jesus in all of his wisdom, decides no, it wouldn't. Or that's not what needs to happen. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who struggles with Jesus. Because John says there's sometimes that Jesus does the work that needs, that we want him to do, and other times he doesn't. And this man comes, and he says to Jesus, you've got to come and fix my kid. You've got to come and heal him. My son's dying. 
help me. And Jesus responds in verse 48 rather callously, I think. At least it sounds like it in initial reading. Jesus said, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. He's beginning, because he's been in this period of obscurity, he's beginning to become more popular, and he understands that as he becomes more in the public frame, the public's going to expect him to prove himself over and over and over. So he looks at this dad whose son is dying, and he says to him, you want me to do a miracle so you'll believe. But this father's different than the crowd. This father isn't asking for a sign from Jesus to prove that Jesus is somebody. This father came to Jesus because he already knows he's somebody. So he comes in and he's like, I, no, I don't need you to perform a sign. I need you to heal my son. This isn't a show. I don't need you to pull full Branson on me. I just need you to be God. Because right now I can't fix this. I need God. He says, come down before my son dies. And Jesus simply says these words to him. You may go. Your son will live. It's at this moment, this is the fulcrum moment in every one of our lives that either repels us away from Jesus or propels us into him. There's only two directions you can go. And Jesus says, go home, your son may live. And this man gets to choose at this moment in his life whether he believes in Jesus completely or he disbelieves in Jesus. And his response to that is one of the most amazing things for me. Because if he simply says, you're not doing what I want you to do, I asked you to come home with me. And he walks away angry and furious because Jesus didn't do what he wanted him to do. He would not have received what he received. But because he believed, and Jesus said, go, dismissively. Like, just go, your son will live. And he goes. He can choose to, to disbelieve because his preconceived notions aren't met. Or he can choose to believe because the character of the man he's asking is worth trusting. So here's what I want you to take away from today. You're going to hear me say it multiple times because it is the core of this, I believe, this text. Every time Jesus speaks, real belief obeys. Every time Jesus commands, real belief will respond. And in, in that, we find ourselves in this story. See, Jesus has that much authority. We need to understand this theologically. Our Bible tells us that the world was spoken into being. The, the, the term for it in the theologians, they call it ex nihilo, out of nothing. God didn't have a little chemistry set that he started with a couple of ingredients and voila, we had a world. It simply said, he said, let there be and there was. Let there be the heavens and the earth. Let there separate the land from the sea. Let's have the animals. Let's create man in our image. And he spoke it into being. And the Bible says it was Jesus who spoke it into being. That's why John would open his story of Jesus by saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See, Jesus' words have authority. And when Jesus speaks, real belief obeys. Because if he can speak the world into existence out of nothing, and he did, can he not heal your problem with a word? And Jesus does it. Now, I know this will shock you. Jesus doesn't always do it the way I think he ought to. One time, he hocks into the ground, makes mud, puts it on a dude's eye sight. 
Another time he rubs a guy's eye, nothing happens. He rubs it again. He sees completely, well, not, something happened, but it wasn't much. And then something big happened. Another time he lays down next to someone and they come to life. Another time he speaks a word and they come to life. Sometimes he goes there and something happens. Sometimes he doesn't go there and something happens. He's constantly changing the method. And there's a wisdom to that. Because if he always did it one way, we would think the way was it. He does it a different way because he's it. So one time he may walk home with you and another time he'd tell you to go home. Real faith obeys when he speaks. So he told the man to go home and the man had a decision. The decision was not to go, well, I guess I got no other options, was to turn around and go. In fact, look at verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word. That's one of the most powerful statements in all scripture. It's the definition of faith. Let me give you a walking definition of faith. And what I simply mean by that term is, this is a practical, everyday understanding of what faith is defined as. Faith is nothing more than believing what God says and doing what he asks. And in in a world where easy believism, that many people believe that as long as I think Jesus is right, that's all that matters. That's not salvation. Salvation is experiencing how right Jesus is. You see, it's not only believing he's telling us the truth, it's doing everything he asks us to do. Disciples obey their teachers. Critics analyze their teachers. And so when we look at this moment, this father sees the authority that Jesus has. And the Bible says he took Jesus at his word. He displayed faith. Faith will always be found on the other side of obedience. There's just no other way to see it in scripture without exception. Our faith is displayed by our obedience and our obedience comes from our initial faith. So this man wasn't going to find out if Jesus was the deal. He already knew he was. And that's why he went. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all of his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. <clears throat> Excuse me. See, the father realized that the authority of Jesus was founded. He trusted the authority. And when he went back, they said, your son's alive. And he said, well, when did he get better? And he said, about the seventh hour of the day. And he said, that's exactly when he told me to go home. But I want you to imagine something with me. When he went home and saw that his son was alive and they embraced, and he and his wife embraced, and the entire household celebrated the goodness of Jesus' words, do you think for a moment the father looked at his son and thought, my faith healed him? No, he looked at his son and what did he think? Jesus healed him. You see, when we live out our faith through obedience, it will never draw the attention to us, it'll draw the attention to him. Because the reason we're obeying is he is bigger than anything we could have ever accomplished on our own. And then not only did he understand Jesus' authority in his life, but I love that he practiced his own authority. Notice what it says here. It says, so he and all of his household believed. Because of his willingness to pursue Jesus, he came back to his family and seeing what Jesus had said and done, there was belief. And his son was given life. And this man began to live out a new authority in his world. And his authority wasn't Rome. And it wasn't Herod. It was Jesus. So that's what we see his response to Jesus' words was. He lived out his faith. He believed Jesus was right. And he obeyed what Jesus told him to do. 
The second thing I want to show you this morning is that there was Christ's response to belief. Remember, the man comes and he begs Jesus and Jesus said, all you want me to do is try to prove myself to you. And the man said, no, no, just come home with me. And it was an amazing statement. Going home with him wasn't miraculous. Going home with him was a declaration, I need you. I need you to come to my house and fix what I can't. And that moment, Jesus saw real faith. John tells us in his gospel in John chapter 3 that the reason that we reject Jesus, the reason that we put Jesus at a distance is we love darkness and sin rather than light and life. Now, I'm talking to church people on a Sunday morning. Well, y'all got to sleep in. It's last hour. But anyway, you all came to church anyway. And, you know, it's spring break for most people. So here we are. You're sitting in church. And I'm talking to a group of church people about loving darkness and sin. And we go, that's not us. That's them. Let's pause for a moment. I'd like you to respond and tell me if you agree with me. People hate when they're told that their pursuits are empty, right? Let's talk about those people, right? People hate when their decisions, when people are told that their decisions are damaging themselves and others. We don't like that, do we? Or when we tell people that they're wasting their time. And that's one of the reasons people don't like Christians is they're constantly saying, we're, we're out of sorts, we're out of the loop, we don't have things put together. But let me pose the question now to the people in the room today. Let me ask you a direct question. Don't you love it when I tell you that you're wasting your life? Don't you have fondness for me when I tell you that the things that you're pursuing that put them over God are idols and those idols being worshipped offend God? You love that, don't you? And don't you lie. He's watching. You don't like it. Do you know how I know? Because for about 40 to 48 times a year, I stand on this stage and say that the word of God says we're better than we're living, and some of you get angry and don't come back. And some of you look at me with that look like, get out of my business. And John says the reason that Jesus is kept at a distance is because we love the darkness and sin more than we love light and life. Because we don't like being told that our pursuits are empty. We don't like being told that we've, we've made things bigger than God, that the God of the universe has been put on secondary control next to ours. I don't like it either. So I'm just going to confess that part of the challenge of this gospel series is that every time Jesus speaks, real belief obeys. And if I won't obey, it's because I don't know that I really believe he's all I need. It changes the way we live, and it changes the way we look, and it changes the way we act. You see, this father didn't go to Jesus because he wanted deep spiritual truth. I'll even propose that it's possible that this man only went to Jesus because he didn't know who he was, but he heard people talking about what he did in Jerusalem. He wasn't excited about spiritual truth. He came to Jesus because he had a need. And this is the question of the morning. Did a need drive you to Jesus? I suspect for every one of us, the answer is yes. You may be even here today and you don't know why you came to church. You never come to church, but you found yourself driving out to the farm, coming into this building with all these people. You're still intimidated as much as you've ever been in your life. And you're wondering, why am I here? I'm telling you why you're here because there's a need in your life and you're suspicious. Jesus may be the answer. Let me tell you the news. He is. He is the answer. And we don't even know what the question is. But the reason we're here is we're driven by need. So when we talked last week about having people stand if they wanted more faith or wanted more joy, and we even said, stand if someone came to your mind and heart 
that you needed to intersect with and offer them hope, and you say, I tried, or I'm thinking about it, but they're just not open to it, then do something more powerful than talking. Pray. Pray that God gathers their attention. But hold on, because sometimes when God gathers people's attention, he knocks them over. And sometimes he picks them up but he'll get their attention. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story. It's just an example of a boy who walks away and it says he came to his senses. I often pray for people that I love in my life that don't know Jesus. I pray that God creates a hunger in them and they come to their senses. Sometimes the way God does that is not the way I would have done it. But it it works. Because we want them to understand that there's a need that only Jesus can solve. Listen to Matthew 9, 12, if you're shocked by this. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The critics of Jesus didn't think they had any need for him, so they questioned everything he did. But notice this father, who didn't even know who he was, traveled 20 miles to show up in his presence and say, I need you. And he didn't even know what he needed. You see, he went because of need and he went because of hope. And every time Jesus speaks, real belief obeys. And when this man walked in the presence of Jesus, he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He went home. And when he went home, his faith was rewarded. It can be as simple as turning and trusting and then going back to where you came from. One of the things that John does here that I hadn't picked up previously, but I was taught it and I thought it's amazing is, and I'd like to conclude this morning by showing you this. In the wedding of Cana, you might remember the story, the Mary, Jesus' mother, came to Jesus at a wedding celebration and said they're out of wine. And Jesus like, what business is that of mine? I'm not in charge of that. And then she says, you know, she gives them that mom look we've all gotten. You moms are really good at it. It looked like, Come on. on. And Jesus says, and I know some of you still don't like this, but I love it. He said, woman, which makes me so happy. He said, woman, it's not my time. My blood is not yet to be poured out. And then Mary does something that's faithful. She says to the disciples, do you remember what she's told them to do? Do whatever he tells you. It's a powerful statement. And it says the disciples did what he told them. He said, take the purification jars, excuse me, and draw out the wine. And the Bible says in the paraphrase, the paraphrase is after they tasted the wine, they believed in Jesus because they obeyed. He said, do this. They did that. It was exactly what he promised and they believed in him. Notice what happened in this story. The father went to Jesus and asked for something. Jesus gave him something different. He believed in Jesus and following his obedience, he believed even more. Faith is always found on the other side of obedience. What John has done is he's taken the first miracle and the second miracle, and he's put them together. And then I learned something, and I'm, it, it's challenging me that this is the first time I think in the chronology of Jesus' ministry that somebody came to Jesus asking for healing. Where to get that idea? Because he'd heard that Jesus was the answer. And when the question came up, he went to the answer. So whether it's a grand celebration at a wedding or a desperate condition of a father, the words of Jesus work. Did you see that? Whether it's the wedding in Cana or the suffering father in Capernaum, it doesn't matter. Jesus is the answer to your celebrations and your great moments of concern. His words work. The words that spoke the world into existence are the same words that bring healing and comfort and peace when it doesn't make sense. And then I want to show you one more thing. Verse 53. The father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. 
The scriptures are clear about something. If you, if you follow them, especially through the New Testament, you're going to see a trend. The Bible speaks to us. It tells us who we are. It doesn't tell us what we do. It tells us who we are. You're a child of the king. You're a son and daughter, adopted into his family, grafted into his family tree forever and ever, never to be removed. You are his chosen. You are his priesthood. You are his testimony. You are his witness. You are the love of his life. You are even, this expression came in the Bible, you're the apple of his eye. You're all of these things. Women, you are his daughter. You are beautiful as you are. You don't have to lose a pound or change your hair or do this or do that. He looks at you. He is so especially fond of you. Fellas, you're his sons. You're his warriors. You're the prince of his kingdom. Jesus said, I'm going to share everything I get as the firstborn. You're joint heirs, Paul says in Ephesians. All of us. Men and women alike, we are his people. He has chosen us from the foundation of the world. You didn't earn it. You don't have to work very hard for it. Just receive it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Before the Bible ever tells us how to live, it tells us who we are. And so I think it's time that what we need to do is become who we are. Did you hear what I said? We need to become who he tells us we are. He's given us all the power in the world to do that. So when he speaks, obey. Not to get something, but because you've already received it. We need to become who we are. We are the children of the king. Our dad's in charge. And everything he has is at our disposal. When he speaks, we obey. Because we believe our father's good, don't we? We believe our father's kind. I believe our father's for us, not against us. I believe that he should flick me off his globe, but instead he embraces me. And the more I have trouble with rebellion, he disciplines me to draw me into him, not to repel me away from him. Church, we need to become what we are. We've been chosen by the king. And Jesus said to this father, go home, your son's well. Listen to the words, your son will live. And for many of us, we wonder what our future is. Listen to the words of Jesus, you will live. Following our death, we will live in the resurrection of our king. As we've been buried into his death, we will be raised to newness of life to walk with him for eternity. This is who we are. Now we ought to just live like it. Live out the power and the reality. Because there was one dad who came desperate and he went home rejoicing. And when it was all said and done, he said, I knew who he was when I started. By obeying him, I know him even more. And isn't that who we worship? Isn't that why we're here today? Now, some of you have questions and you have concerns. And listen, I just don't want to close the book, drop the mic and walk off stage and go deal with it. No, no, come talk to us. Because we have testimony in this place of people who were on their last moment of faith and God rewarded it. Jesus is looking to respond to our faith. Do we trust him enough to obey? So just a practical take home this week. How do you do that? Take the book of Luke. If you read four chapters a day, you could knock it out by next Sunday. Just read through the four chapters of Luke. And every time Jesus tells us to do something, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, give to the poor. Every time you read something in the Bible, go do it. Because remember, when Jesus speaks, real faith obeys. And give yourself a challenge this week. Is God faithful? I think you'll find the answer refreshing.
Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.